Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for today. God, thank you that uh, this is the day that you have made. God, thank you that there is uh, churches all over this world that are gathering today, God, that are declaring your word, that are putting hearts and minds, ears, God, our eyes to work today to see wonderful things in your word. And we know that that is only done because your Holy Spirit allows it, and not only allows it, but but makes it happen and empowers, enlivens, uh, gives us the grace to hear, the grace to see, and the grace to know you more so that we would love you. God, I pray for our ears. I pray you would allow us to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say this morning. God, we pray for uh, Pastor Peter. God, we pray you would heal him. Um, God, that he would recover from this surgery. Lord God, we pray um, for Nick and Angel as they are on a trip this week. God, would you bless them, encourage them with a time of respite. God, be glorified today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a vine. And amongst the branches of that vine, there was a particular group of branches. These branches had grown up together, and a few other branches had intermingled with those branches and looked very similar to the first set of branches, for they had stems and leaves, and they produced flowers. One day, the group of branches all together were discussing what was the most important part of their existence. During their discussion, a beautiful bumblebee happened by, and she overheard their discussion. She politely interrupted them and said that she knew exactly what the most important part of their existence was. So the bee began to tell all who would listen that producing flowers was the most important part of being a branch because it produced fragrant smells and sweet, sweet nectar. She used her most flowery words to convince the branches that she was right. And some of the branches, especially the ones that looked like the other branches but were not quite the same branches, were enamored with Miss B's viewpoint, and they started to believe the bee. As the bee flew away, they started to teach all the other branches around them. They would listen, that the only thing the branches needed to do was produce more flowers. They started to decorate their leaves. They started to decorate their stems. Every part of them they wanted to make look like a flower. They even would have contests to see who could look the most flowery. They believed that flower making was so important that they pulled themselves away from the other branches and started growing in a new place. Some of the branches that remained wondered, were they right? Is flower producing the most important thing for a branch to do? And they were confused. One day, one of the main branches, one of the, the older, well-established branches, noticed the struggling young branches. 
And wisely, he asked them a question. He said, what, young branches, is the purpose of your stem? As they pondered and thought, and they, they didn't really understand, they said, well, it, it keeps us here, or um, our stems to hold our, our flowers so everyone could see them. And the wise old branch gently, lovingly began to teach them that the most important part of being a branch is being attached to the vine and receiving from the vine the life-giving nutrients that only flowed from the vine. He taught them that their flowers and their leaves are dependent upon receiving those nutrients from the vine. You see, John has a similar situation on his hands as we encounter the book of 1 John. And he took this opportunity to write to some churches that have had taken viewpoints that were not quite Christ and him crucified, taken parts of those viewpoints and ran with them and started making those the important things instead of being in Christ. If the Christians in, the, in these churches think that knowledge or, or promoting the slogan of the day is the most important thing, most important part of their existence, John knew that they would neglect their attachment to Christ and the life-giving nutrients that the Holy Spirit provides in Christ. George MacDonald is quoted as saying, nothing is so deadening to our spiritual lives as a habitual dealing with the outside of spiritual things. Okay? So if we stay on the outside, we look to do the things that we just come to church and we don't get mad and we don't cuss and we don't do things that we think other people who are good don't want us to do. Or we do do things that other people think are good and we, we do those things. But we don't do them because the Holy Spirit is alive and indwelling us and, and bringing about the work and bringing about the sustenance of our lives, then we'll miss the point. And, and we'll grow deader and deader and deader as our lives continue. John has packed this letter with encouragement to those who he loves and focuses on the most vital aspect of their spiritual lives. John continues in chapter 4 his exhortation to his beloved people to discern between the Holy Spirit and the spirits of the world. Uh, Nick did a wonderful job last week of, of drawing out these contrasts. And he knows, John knows, that when the seeds of doubting Jesus' divinity and departing from the apostolic truth grow up, they will produce temptations towards self-righteousness and impurity and lead these people whom John loves to neglect the greatest commandments, to love God, to love others. This brings us to our text for today, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 10. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Three points I'd like to highlight today out of this passage, out of the many that could be drawn out of this passage. Number one is the command to love. Number two is the goal of love. And number three is the power of love. Let's begin with the command of love. John says, Beloved, let us love one another. Notice first that John, once again, addresses his audience as beloved. In other words, these are family matters. These are issues that those of us that are in Christ need to be aware of and need to deal with. Those of the division who were attempting to draw away or redefine Jesus, they could always draw a crowd. Why? It's much like modern day people who try to divide and draw away. They would tickle the ears. They would use meaningless terms in their communication. And apparently part of the communication concerned love. So John decided to write what many people consider, you know, his magnum opus on love. Maybe it was that, that if we're not doing such a good job, then we're not loving. Or whatever they chose to, to, to bring about in their teaching. Or possibly because we do not include and accept everyone, we can't be loving. Right? Which is, is part of our modern day love philosophy. Therefore, John takes opportunity to expound upon his teaching on love by grounding it in the character of God. I once read a statement that he who controls the definitions controls the movement. In a similar statement, George Orwell said in his book, 1984, he who controls the past controls the future. If you can get people to think and operate according to your definitions, they will follow your viewpoint. This is why John wanted to establish, first of all, that love is from God, the eternal God, the eternal triune God that has always existed as one God in three persons. And that existence has always been characterized by love, sacrificial love. They, in the Godhead, love to love one another. They love to glorify each other. It is a celebration of each other as they communicate the greatness of the Godhead as they see it in one another. And they highlight it as often as they, command, as they can. So, John says that 
God is love. And this statement of God is love has been an opportunity for some to elevate love to an idolatrous state, right? So they take the, the phrase, God is love, and they make the word is an equal sign, right? Much as you would do a mathematical equation. Five plus five is ten. Well, that's not what John's saying. John is communicating that God is so intrinsically bound up with love that to experience God is to experience love. Remember when Jesus in John 14, 6 said that he was the way, the truth, and the life? What he was saying is that he's so intimately connected to the truth and so separated from falsehood and lies that when you encounter him, you encounter the truth. That does not mean that Jesus and the truth are equal. For truth it is an attribute of who he is. In the same way, all of life originated from him and is dependent upon him for their existence. Accordingly, to be in the presence of Jesus is to experience life-giving power that is beyond scrutiny. That does not mean that Jesus and life are equal. For creating and sustaining physical and spiritual life is a part of who Jesus is. What the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to us by saying God is love is that love is such an intimate attribute of God that it is inextricably effectual in all that God is. That when we encounter God, we encounter love. We must at this point, at this point also emphatically state this truth, that God's love is holy, right? That means that God's love is transcendent and that it's pure, that God's love is not ordinary, nor is it tainted or watered down. It is perfect. So with confidence, the Holy Spirit tells us through John that God is love. Therefore, when we think about God's omniscience or his omnipotence, his wisdom, his faithfulness, even his wrath, we must do so connecting that with his love. It is his loving omniscience, his loving omnipotence, his loving wisdom, his loving faithfulness, and yes, his loving wrath. All of these are part of God's character. John has established the origins and the foundations of love. Let's look at what these verses teach us about the love that resides in us. The first thing that John said is that love is from God. In other words, love is a gift from God. As we abide in love by the power of the Holy Spirit, our love gives evidence also that we've been born again and that we know God. We must understand that we cannot cause ourselves to muster up this love. It is a gift, right? It is, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5 tells us. If love is a gift 
from God, right? And it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That means that we have been given a love that is not natural in its capacity. We have been given the capacity for supernatural love. Imagine that in your, in your parenting, to have supernatural love. Imagine that in your, in your marriage, to have supernatural love. Your friendships, your encounters with your coworkers, supernatural And this is ours. It's a gift from God. So my mind, which works um, probably, well, it's just unusual. It's, uh, I have a very simple mind, which is why, you know, the, the story at the beginning, God would use stories like that for me. But I also have a very silly mind that can be complex at times. Just ask my wife, um, because I tend to make a comment or a joke about just about everything, and she gets very upset with that. But we know how that goes. Um, so I asked John this question as I was reading. John, um, he and I had a conversation. <laughs> if we who are born of God will love, as you just said, we're, we're going to do it. Why do we need to be commanded, John, to love then? Why would you need to start by saying, Beloved, let us love one another. So we, we sat down with the Holy Spirit and we, we thought this out. And John, through the Holy Spirit, opened my eyes to see that God has designed the fulfillment of His promises to be carried out by the Holy Spirit through the power of His Word. The Holy Spirit opens our ears to listen and enlivens our hearts to obey God's commandments. In other words, the Word of God is living, it produces hearing, it is active, it gives obedience, all by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why John would command us to love one another, because he knows in that command, there's life, right? It's the same way that Jesus would say, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And also say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. There is power for those that the Holy Spirit enlivens to have the word come inside of them and produce life. The word is powerful. Now, this is what Paul is so famous for in in most of his letters, right? He spends chapter after chapter after chapter Uh, declaring truth and establishing foundations until he's ready to start issuing commands, right? Romans 12, 1, first 11 chapters of Romans, John builds this massive argument that we are called in Christ and that we have been saved and, and that it's not based upon your heredity, it's not based upon your religion, it's based upon the work of God and the grace that's found in Christ and the cross, right? And, and it's not based upon our, our sin condemning us. It's based upon, upon having no condemnation and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then in Romans 12, 1, he says, Therefore, I urge you, by the mercies of God, right? All this in chapters 1 through 11 that we've gone through, to present yourselves 
a living sacrifice. The only way we can do that is if we receive the commands by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word becomes alive in us and effective in our hearts to cause obedience in our, in our actions, in our words, in our relationships, in every part of us. And, and this, is, this is a growing, lifelong process, right? You, you start to see, man, I'm just not there. What do I do when my love doesn't look like that? What do I do and when, when I read those commands and, and I'm, just, I'm just not there? And you realize that there are parts of you that have been attentive to the scriptures or has been concerned with, with how your speech relates to those you work with or, or is not as anxious to cut that person off in traffic because they cut you off. And you start to see small things in your life. And you start to see this pattern of growth. There's, there's two types of growth in the Bible, right? There is a mechanical growth, which is if I took all these chairs and I started stacking them one and one and one and one again, uh, all on top of each other, right? That would mechanically, the pile would be growing. One and plus one and plus one and plus one. And the other way growth is established in the Bible is botanical growth, growth like a plant, right? Growth like it takes a long time for these things to happen and to come about. There's sometimes that, that you get the sprig in, right? And you notice it. Wow, there's growth there. There's sometimes it's your first flower or your first leaf. But there's sometimes that you've been an established plant for a while. It doesn't appear. It's too much more growth. But guess what? Just like the little branches, refocus on your stem and your attachment to Christ, the vine. And you'll notice there is the work of the Holy Spirit going on inside you. This leads us to our second point. Verse 9, John gives us the goal of love. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this, in what? In the unstoppable love of God. As I read this, uh, my mind, we are um, in the bourgeois Bible study. We're going through about, um, I don't know, two-thirds of the way through the book of Genesis now. Um, But my mind went back to Adam. And in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, what does God do? You remember? That's right. He doesn't zap them. He doesn't eradicate them. He doesn't kill them uh, physically immediately. He comes down, as we can imagine was his habit, in the cool of the evening, and he seeks them. He goes after them. Similarly, he does that for Cain, right? When Cain realizes that his um, sacrifice is rejected, God goes to Cain. And over and over and over again in biblical history, 
we see God coming to his people and reaffirming the relationship and building them back up all, all the way. We get this picture that the humans just keep adding to the mess and the world just keeps getting messier and messier until God establishes a point in history where his purposes came together at the perfect time and God himself stepped into our messy world. See, we, we want to um, wallow a lot of times in the mess because it's what we know, right? But Christ came down and, and stepped into the mess intentionally knowing that he would be abused and rejected, knowing that he would be tortured crucified. He chose to come to our mess. When you see the messiness of the world invading your life, this is the point John is making in chapter 9. Remember the love of God. Remember that this is God's design, that we see the mess in our lives or our families or our friends or our co-workers or the world And we would see opportunities for supernatural love. We would see opportunities for God to express love to us, through us, and and for those around us. And we get get to be a partner with the Holy Spirit in extending love. An amazing, amazing aspect. But why? What, what, what's John's goal? What does he say by the power of the Holy Spirit? That it, that it is the goal of this overwhelming love of the incarnation. So that we might live through Christ. In your study of, of God's word day to day, make notice of all the in Christ statements that you read throughout the Bible whether it says in Christ or in Him or through Christ or through Him, whatever it is, this list will be huge. Just make it, just take a piece of paper on your side of your notebook or whatever it is and just write it down. Here's a verse. Here's another verse. I sent in Him, through Him, in Him. All these things because these are declaring statements that declare who we are in Christ. In other words, become who you are. This is who you are in Christ. Now grow up into that person. That's the point of the in Christ, the through Christ, the through him statements over and over again. This brings us to our final point, the power of love in verse 10. John writes, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We did not love God. We were not sitting around twiddling our thumbs and saying, All right, God, you know, I sure do love you, and I sure do wish you'd let me into heaven. You know, Romans 5 tells us we were enemies we and i personally 
um, for a long time, uh, even in the midst of, of not being saved, would have said that if God got close enough to me, I'd stab in his back. I knew that. I knew I hated God. Because if I got close enough to someone where the life of God was experienced in them, it reflected me back to myself. And I hated what I saw. So I didn't want God to be anywhere near me until he came near to me and opened my eyes and let me see that radiant beauty of who he was and who he was in Christ and more importantly, what Christ did for me. So our world is rampant with definitions for love today, right? We have it. We have songs and movies and other media outlets that want to say that love is this happy, happy feeling. But what happens when the feeling fades away? What happens when their love falls apart? They've made an idol out of this love. Hey, Bubba. Son's waving to me. They made an idol out of this love. But guess what? John already said it. God is love. Love is not God. You can't flip the equation back and forth, back and forth. Because love is, is an attribute, is a, is a huge, is an is a experiential attribute. But it is not all that God is. And contrary to popular belief, um, we don't have to submit ourselves to everyone's opinion about what it means to love. We submit ourselves to what the Word says is loving, what the Word said is true about who we are, made in the image of God, declaring the promises of God, being faithful by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, John says that God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins as an evidence and a foundation of His love for us and the power of our love. Propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath against our sin by His own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Notice two parts of that statement. First, the reason for God's wrath is our sin. We all deserve justly God's wrath, the death that follows that. For in Adam all sinned, and not just in Adam do all sin, we daily put our stamp of approval back on that statement. We see it over and over again. But the good news God provided the sacrifice. God provided the satisfaction for his own wrath by sending himself, by sending his son to die on the cross in our place. Because of the great love of God, we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get... What 2 Corinthians 5 tells us is the ministry of reconciliation. 
Paul writes, if therefore, if anyone, I'm sorry, I'm starting in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, in like manner, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How great a life would it be if we just spent the rest of our time here on earth reconciling, operating in the ministry of reconciliation, whether that's an argument about a toy, whether that's an argument about um, our ability to um, to communicate properly words or, or what's our stance on such and such a position. And we just spent our lives being reconcilers. Because our love, our love is to be characterized in the same way as Christ's love, as the, the love of the Trinity, characterized by sacrifice. I have, I really appreciated how Nick has encouraged us on week in and week out that most of us would be willing to, to take a bullet for our spouse or to do some great act of love. But how many of us are willing to make the daily choices that really show love, that really set aside ourselves, takes up our cross, and follows Christ in the midst of our relationships? These choices, when we make them by the power of the Holy Spirit in love, they're going to overwhelm those who we're doing it for. Our, our spouses, our children, our families, our friends, our co-workers, the world is going to see differently. The thing that they're going to see is the life of God in us, right? So that they will give glory. They see our deeds that we prepared for in, uh, beforehand, Ephesians 2. They will give glory to God. Because what they see us doing, we have that opportunity before us. Next week, we're going to take time and, and look through a lot of more practical things of love. Um, so I encourage you to be here. Please continue to pray for Peter and his healing. Um, thank you so much for being here. Uh, let's pray, and we'll head downstairs. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. God, thank you so much for um, loving us. God, year in and year out through Pastor Peter. God, thank you for this man and his faithfulness to draw our hearts back to you. God, we pray, God, even now as he recuperates, Lord, that you would, would enliven his heart. God, you would protect him from doubting. God, you guard his faith. 
God, that he would be vibrant. We pray for Miss Jean as well. God, would you give her an extra measure of grace? God, that she would uh, continue to be the light that she expresses so well um, by her faithfulness. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, your love. We treasure you. We want to go from here, and we want to walk in love in a way that honors you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.